back in 2014, I was searching around inside this 50,000 square foot warehouse full of industrial racking, a massive conveyor network made up of hundreds of yards of aluminum speed rail. My friend needed that whole thing out of there ASAP, and he had offered me a cut if I could figure out how much it was worth and then help find a buyer. So I was looking for any information I could find to make this deal happen. Because you got to love a random challenge, especially if there's beer money at the end. And that's how, in a dark corner, I found this dirty old three-ring binder that said something about conveyor systems. I had to take it outside and swat the dust off just to be able to read the phone number on the back. And then I gave it a call. And that's the first time I spoke to Francisco Serrano, almost six years ago now. He was nice and accommodating and figured out pretty quickly that I knew nothing about industrial conveyor systems. So we just started talking and somehow we got to speaking Spanish and I mentioned that I'd produced documentaries and film and that's when the story of his father came out. My father was kidnapped from Ecuador by the state of Florida. They went down there breaking all sorts of treaties and kidnapped him. And now he's sitting on death row for over a decade for a crime he never committed. Whoa. Now they planted evidence. They planted his fingerprint in order to get the arrest warrant. And we even have DNA evidence that would exonerate him. But the Florida courts won't admit it. Just like they won't even take in all the evidences. They, they barred us from talking about the kidnapping, you know, all the human rights violations. They wouldn't allow us to talk about any of that. And why? Because they're covering their ass. They've got this guy... They label him the Mexican, and they blame him for the most heinous crime in Polk County. They're not going to let that go, and they're not going to let us defend my father to get him out. Wow. Now, you can look him up. His name is Nelson Ivan Serrano, and he's still on death row, and he's probably going to die there. We talked for probably almost an hour, and that was the first time I'd ever heard anything about the Erie Manufacturing Massacre. So I got off this call and the first thing I thought was, I have no time for this. I mean, he thinks his dad is innocent. Of course, I'd want to believe my dad too. But the kidnapping thing, the international kidnapping where an actual state representative kidnaps somebody from a sovereign nation, that is nuts. So I just had all these questions still and we just stayed in touch and kept talking on the phone. And for the last year, I've been recording these conversations just trying to make sense out of one of the most complicated and layered stories of injustice that I've ever heard. It's really the story of the American dream gone horribly wrong for everyone involved. Four people dead, a business, a partnership decimated, millions of dollars missing, and one man on death row unjustly in the United States. So Why tell this story now, May 24th, 2020, we're releasing this podcast, this pilot episode? Well, as of today, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights can finally release its ruling that the United States of America and the state of Florida violated Nelson Serrano's rights and he should be released from prison immediately. So I should explain, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights is a division of the Organization of American States, or OAS. It's like the United Nations, but for the Americas. So that's where we are. And so here is just some of the text from that ruling. 
Taking into account the conclusions of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights on the time Nelson Ivan Serrano has been held on death row, the commission recommends that his sentence be commuted. Welcome to the Missing Hours Podcast, the story of an American dream turned to tragedy. And the fight to exonerate a man unjustly sentenced to death. The jury having found you guilty of murder in the first degree, I'm now adjudicating you guilty of each count. Understand? Yes, Your Honor. It's really an extraordinary story of an abuse of power. Think about all the victims. You put away somebody that you convicted as guilty, these victims think justice has been served and at least they can close the door on the tragedy that they had suffered. And then they find out that this person was actually innocent. For Springline Media, I'm Scott Meyer, and these are The Missing Hours. On December 3rd, 1997, Diane Dasso Patiso, a promising young state attorney, went to pick up her husband, George Patiso, and her brother, Frank Dasso, who worked together in the family business, Erie Manufacturing. Later, Phil and Nicoletta Dasso became worried when their son, Frank, hadn't showed up for his twin daughter's 10th birthday party. So they went to the Erie building to check on them. Felice Phil Dasso, the voice on that 911 call, had just lost his son, his daughter, his son-in-law, and business partner in an instant. Frank Dasso, father, husband, and son, 35 years old. Diane Dasso Patiso, a young prosecutor in the Bartow District Attorney's Office, just 28 years old. Her husband, George Patiso, also an employee at Erie Manufacturing, just six days shy of his 28th birthday. George Gonzalez, a partner in Erie Manufacturing and Garment Conveyor Systems. He was 69. Journalistic crime shows and TV news showed Detective Tommy Ray describing the murder scene. They were all shot execution style. Uh, George Patiso and George Gonzalez were you know, found side by side. George Patiso was shot five times. George Gonzalez was shot twice. He then comes over where Frank is trying to get up. And then Frank Dasso was shot three times. You heard Diane coming in? Diane Patiso. He chased her out here in the hallway. Was the last one to be killed. Diane was shot 
twice in the back of the head. The day of the homicide, they initially told the Bartow police, Nelson Serrano, look at Nelson Serrano. At this point, I want to take a moment here because I've worried a lot about wanting to honor the memory of these four people that did not deserve to die, especially in such a violent way. What weighs on me the most in doing this podcast is putting the families of these victims through more grief than they've already been through. And I want to avoid that as much as I possibly can. But I also believe that if someone has been sentenced to death unjustly, it only makes the situation more tragic. So that's my goal in this podcast. I want to lay out the known facts and evidence of this story the best that I can. I also want to identify the big questions I've had over the years talking to Francisco and then search for answers. Who else had a motive? Where did the missing millions of dollars go? How did the justice system run this investigation and international kidnapping with no oversight? There are also several alternate theories, including some that have stronger evidence than you might expect. A disgruntled employee, the mob, and even a detective from across the country that believes a serial killer might be involved. In the end, my hope is that this podcast will help shed light on not just this case, but the whole system that allows for these things to occur. So with that in mind, let's get back to it. Why was it so important for them to arrest him that they would risk this international incident and all this crazy stuff to begin with? They needed somebody to fall. You know, when you're up for re-election and you're this hot shot district attorney who's been so tough on crime and then the worst murder case in their history shows up and you don't even have a lead, you can't convict anybody of this. Who do you think looks bad? Who do you think people are going to say, we need to get him out and we need to put somebody else in? So there's your motivation on getting anybody. And my father, because he was he was a partner of, of one of the victims, because he because he was suing them, they're like, oh, this guy's got the motive. And then when they invented that fingerprint, they're trying to turn around and say, we see, he wasn't in Atlanta. He did fly to Orlando, even though their theory doesn't stick. It's a completely impossible theory. You know, they still got it through. Wow. Now. The one thing that's ricocheted, you know, and hit him back in the face is that they were so stupid about this kind of stuff. You know, they go down to Ecuador and they violate all these laws. They they ask for an extradition treaty first, and then they're like, oh, shit, we don't want that. So then they decide two days later to fly down there and kidnap him. And then they can just – and then what, what are they thinking? You see this in the way they give testimony, the way they've been on TV. They look at Ecuador – like some podunk third world country that are all a bunch of idiots and savages anyway. So they they don't know what to do. And we're the big mighty United States. Nobody can do anything to us. And we control the judicial process and the courts here. So nothing's going to happen to us. You know, this is where their arrogance is at. And because nobody's holding them accountable, nobody provides any oversight to what they do. Mm-hmm. And there's a law that states that even if it gets proven that they intentionally tried to convict an innocent man on the death penalty, the law states that you still can't do anything to these prosecutors or these judges. Not criminally, not civilly. Whoa. So they truly feel like they're above the law. That's exactly what happened. All of the people involved in my father's conviction have all been given awards, have all been given uh, career promotions, have all been put on the Hall of Fame. Wow. There's your motivation. That's crazy. And it's not the only case. 
happens. This happens everywhere. State of Florida more than most areas. But this happens everywhere. That's why it's got to stop. That's why the story is important. That's why all these organizations that are against the death penalty, that are that are for criminal justice reform, that want things to be fair and just and not be about winning. When they hear my father's story, this is the story. This is what they want to talk about because they see so many things gone wrong, mm-hmm. so many things that were manipulated. This proves their point, all the points that they've been fighting. Wow. Yeah. Listen, I got to go. I got dinner. Through the course of this case, over a dozen attorneys have represented Nelson Serrano at different times. So he's seen the best and the worst of it, from public defenders to super high-profile attorneys. I mean, here's an example. Here's Roy Black, who represented Nelson in part of the appeals process on the system. So while our justice system, I think, is really a wonderful system, we get many injustices because of the flawed nature of human beings, about the police, you know, trying to go, you know, solve a case and will arrest anybody by prosecutors who, because of their egos and careers, just want to convict somebody. The appellate courts don't really take a close examination of the evidence for various reasons. So we do get innocent people convicted of crimes. During the four years between Nelson's arrest and the beginning of the trial in 2006, the Serranos secured the best defense attorneys they could find, Cheney Mason and Robert Norgard. You may recognize Cheney Mason's name as the defense attorney for Casey Anthony. Here's just part of his opening statement. You heard Mr. Guerrero tell you that according to Mr. Dasso and his wife, Hysterical and on the evening, as you would expect them to be, these four people coming in and finding what they found. Look for Nelson Serrano. The evidence will establish that they had gotten together and conspired, Mr. Dasso and and Mr. Gonzalez, to remove Nelson Serrano as their partner, to fire him from his job as president of the company seven months prior to the killing on December the 3rd, 1997. They changed the locks. There is no evidence, nor will there be evidence, that Nelson Serrano was ever at Erie Manufacturing Garment Conveyor's place of business after he was ousted and left. So, the evidence fails to put him in Bartow the evidence fails to put a gun in his hand. The evidence fails to put him at the scene of the crime. The evidence fails to link him by forensic evidence in any capacity whatsoever. I submit to you that the evidence establishes overwhelming reasonable doubt point after point after point. And that will be your job to look and see. So, Francisco, what do you remember from that time when you first heard about the murders and when your father first heard about the murders uh, and he was in Atlanta at the time? So, you know, my father came in the very next day. Um, As soon as he got home, uh, the cops came, asked him to come to the precinct. He went all the way to Bartow and uh, agreed to be interviewed. He answered questions with no attorney. They asked him uh, to take a um, carbon test on his hands and on his body. And he, he, you know, he cooperated with that. 
Um, he was there to see what he could do to help. This is the carbon test that shows whether or not you've been in the, v- the vicinity of a, a gun that was fired. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. From what I understand, when you fire a gun, particles of carbon are emitted through the air. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, not only forward of the gun, but to the to the rear of the gun and to the sides of the gun, it goes everywhere. So, and these particles will embed themselves in your skin, in your clothing, you know, and not just on your hands. It goes into your face and go whatever's exposed, it's going to get. Yeah. So they, they did that test on him. They did that test on me. Both negative. And, uh, both negative, right. There's no evidence that puts him at the scene of the crime. In fact, there's a hotel video that shows that he's at a hotel in Atlanta that morning and that evening, or that afternoon and that evening. Um, there's uh, eyewitness testimony that says that they saw a man, by the, a young Asian male between the ages of 25 and 30 years old there. Uh, my father would have been 59 at the time. Uh, and he's, you know, um, Ecuadorian. There's a, they say that he drove a teal cutter lease on this. This guy says that there was a brand new beige Cadillac parked in front of the, of the murder scene. Um, my father was on a business trip. The state says he was driving a teal Nissan. Mm-hmm. And the witness says there was a. There was a beige, brand new beige Cadillac. So there, there's there's no evidence there. There, are, the DNA that was found in in a glove underneath one of the victims that everybody agrees was used by the murderer, exonerates my father. It excludes him, and yet they were able to convict him and put him on death row. In 2007. The guilty verdict and death penalty come back. The Serranos had spent every penny they could on their defense attorneys, Cheney Mason and Robert Norgard, and now their only option became a public defender. I'm sure there are public defenders out there that are really good, but this guy was not one of them. In fact, he was so bad that, well, here's a part of the statement from the Florida Supreme Court. I quote, The chief judges of Florida's circuit courts are thus directed to remove Mr. Truskoski from their respective lists of capital conflict attorneys if he appears thereon, and remove and replace him from any capital cases pending in their respective circuits, including any post-conviction capital cases in which he is counsel of record. Basically, they said, this guy is not fit to practice on the most important cases, and he should be removed immediately. It was a very, very strong statement. And when others read that, they were like, man, the Florida Supreme Court has rarely ever done that in their entire history. Wow. To say that. So, you know, so imagine from 2007 to 2009, I'm going bonkers because I need a competent attorney. This is big. And uh, and I couldn't risk having this guy, Truskowski, who did not want to release this case. He wanted another opportunity to prove himself. So the effort to try to get that to happen was was huge. A lot of trips. Back in 2002, 2003, Francisco filed a claim with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights against the country of Ecuador. Ecuador did not want to recognize the involvement of their authorities in my father's kidnapping and in his illegal deportation. I was very lucky to get on national TV in Ecuador a lot. 
and bring this out. And public opinion was on my side. Francisco, at this point, is traveling for work, still running American slick rail conveyors, and traveling back and forth to Ecuador, appearing on TV and doing anything he can to drum up more action on his father's case. And then in 2009, he finally catches a break, and the Inter-American Commission decides to take on the case against Ecuador. So then Ecuador decided, okay, wait, give, give, give us some time. And what they did is they formed their own investigative committee, an interministerial commission. And in 60 days, that investigation came out with the exact same results that we had independently, as well as the Inter-American Commission did. And they then accepted responsibility for the actions of their agents and acknowledged that these police officers were bribed, that they acted illegally and without authority and that my father was not deported legally, that he was in a sense kidnapped and extracted. They also recognized that this was all done at the behest of these Florida officials yeah, with the cooperation of certain individuals in the American embassy. And so it was at that point that they took full responsibility for my father's defense and his well-being, 2009. As of that moment... The Ecuadorian government was now fully behind Nelson Serrano, funding his appeals process and actively working to seek his release and return to Ecuador. Here's a snippet from the Ecuadorian Minister of Government. Declarar inconstitucional, ilegal y arbitrario el proceso de deportación seguido en contra del ciudadano ecuatoriano Nelson Iván Serrano Sáenz. The Ecuadorian government declares the deportation of Nelson Iván Serrano Sáenz unconstitutional and consequently declares the nullity of all legal proceedings and legal action taken. We ask the United States of America for the immediate return of this Ecuadorian citizen. La inmediata devolución del ciudadano ecuatoriano. The United States did not respond. Over the last 11 years, Ecuador has poured millions of dollars into the appeals process. A man convicted and sentenced to death after murdering four people execution style is trying to get off death row. Laura Harris is in the newsroom this morning with more on what we're expecting in court today. Laura. Dan, in today's hearing, Nelson Serrano's new attorney is set to contend his former attorney wasn't competent to represent Serrano. There have been appeals, but the Florida Supreme Court upheld the conviction and death sentence in March of 2011. This newest phase is expected to take at least two weeks. Live in the newsroom, Laura Harris, ABC Action News. But even with the resources, Nelson remains on death row. But maybe there's a new light at the end of the tunnel. The whole reason we're starting this podcast today, May 24th, 2020, a new conclusion from the same organization that pushed Ecuador to recognize its wrongdoing, a body that represents the 35 nations of the Western Hemisphere, the culmination of a huge effort. I know we're talking more than a decade that we started that claim. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has now finalized their findings and in their official findings, They have ruled against Florida, against the United States, saying that they did do everything egregiously, consciously. They did violate my father's rights and that they're demanding that my father's sentence be commuted and that he be immediately released. Wow. But there's just one problem. In the Organization of American States, there's a thing called the American Declaration. It's agreed that American Declaration needs to exist by every country in North and South America. 
but the only country that hasn't signed it is the United States. The U.S. fully supports the American Declaration, the Organization of American States, and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The headquarters is in Washington, D.C., but unlike the other 34 member nations, we've never signed the Declaration, so we aren't required to even acknowledge its findings. Their final ruling was delivered to the United States last September. And what did the United States do? They turned around and said, oh, you know what, we need another month. So they got another six months to respond to the final ruling. Just basically say anything Mm -hmm. they want to say to it. And instead of saying whatever they want to say, they just said, can you give us another month? And then they let the next 30 days go by without responding. Until today, they have not responded in any way, shape or form. And so when is that seven months up? It's already up. So now the, what the, the commission has said to them is, okay, this is our final ruling. We're done. You obviously had nothing to say. And we're asking you now, are you going to abide by our recommendations for reparation? And you have 30 days. Until then, we will keep this ruling private. But if by May 24th, you haven't responded, you know, if you haven't given us anything about how you're going to repair this situation, um, you know, this is going to be available for the public to see. And in the past, they don't care. Wow. They just don't care. It's very contradictory to the image that you have of the United States, right? And, and, and of people have of the United States as a citizen. You know, you pledge allegiance to the flag. You feel that you're in a Christian nation and that we are the defender of human rights around the world. And yet you have this stark contradiction. And you and I have talked about this, but supposedly the reason why the U.S. hasn't signed the declaration is because it sees itself as a target. But after talking about this all these years, I feel like this case is just so clear. For the first time in our nation's history since 1830, a constitutional representative, in this case a state attorney, obstructed the federal process of extradition. It hasn't happened since 1830. And they did so in the cover of night. You know, that's why it's one of the most evidenced case of human rights violations in the history of the United States. You know, as far as uh, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, since they were founded. That's, wow. That's crazy. The state hid from the defense that they had requested an extradition petition that, that was completely withheld from the defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if the defense would have known that there was an extradition petition, and on that extradition petition, it clearly states in capital letters and in large font that the death penalty will not be sought um, against uh, my father. And that guarantee was the U.S. government to the Ecuadorian government. And what happened to that extradition petition? The uh, the state tried to hide it. And then knowing that it already had been put into place two days after it was put into place, um, they flew to Ecuador and, and kidnapped my father. Next time, we'll go step-by-step into the international kidnapping. We'll look at the people behind it and how this whole thing was even possible. See, all crimes can be broken down into a simple framework, means, motive, and opportunity. We're gonna look at each piece of this puzzle as we walk through this story. Means, what's the prosecution's theory about the murder weapons? Where did they go? They were never found. 
motive. The state says it was revenge over a business conflict. But what about Nelson's lawsuit against the partners that had a clear path to winning? What about the fact that Nelson and Francisco had since moved on and started a new successful company? And if Nelson is such a mastermind, would he cooperate willingly for so many years? Opportunity. What we know is that on December 3rd, 1997, Nelson Serrano appears on a hotel security camera in Atlanta at 12.42 p.m. And again, nine hours and 35 minutes later at 10.17 p.m. The state's timeline claims that Nelson was able to travel through three airports, four cities, without ever ending up on any cameras, and that he left no evidence at the crime scene or in the rental car they say he used. And then he made it back on camera in the same clothes at the same La Quinta Hotel near the Atlanta airport. So where was Nelson Serrano between 12.42 p.m. and 10.17 p.m.? These are the missing hours. I'm Scott Meyer for Springline Media. For more information about where to listen to this podcast and to better understand all the people involved in this case, visit us at themissinghours.com. We hope to hear from you. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>